You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where like the local retailers, we're starting our Christmas season way, way too early. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look in the five and ten Glistening once again With candy canes and silver lanes aglow Hello and welcome to an unseasonably cold episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Well, maybe the episode isn't unseasonably cold, but by God, is it unseasonably cold outside. Of course, if you're listening to us in the middle of summer, this really doesn't do anything for you. Regardless, this is an internet radio show hosted by me, Sean Engel, that is devoted to covering the myriad comic books of the Green Lantern titles, running from cover date July 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my favorite Green Lanterns, and one of whom we're going to be covering today in Guy Gardner number 5, where Guy heads out to sunny Las Vegas in search of Goldface, and actually ends up finding some awkwardness at uh, some of the institutions that purvey the uh, Nevada area. The ones with uh, women who service you. I can't go much further. But on a happier side, well, maybe not a happier side... Green Lantern, issue number 36, gets to deal with Dr. Light, who eventually goes on to brutally kill Sue Dibney. Wow, I just kind of made this issue turn for a dark side. I, <laughs> I apologize for that. But be certain that the issues, or the episodes themselves, or uh, the comics themselves, eventually I'll get it right, are not dark. They're fun and enjoyable reads. So, as soon as we take a little break here and play a couple of promos for some of my favorite podcasts out there, we will be coming back to bring you my coverage of the Green Lantern and the Guy Gardner comic book. So, stay tuned, enjoy the promos, and we'll see you on the other side. Your own front door. it's Christmas. Obi-Wan, your lightsaber's showing. Take a bath, Pete. Live long and do it. it, Frodo. I'm sick of being a goddamn scarecrow. I'll give this podcast thing a try. Chew bubble gum and kick your ass. Wow, you've gone from very fine to near mint. What a man. Size matters not. Two true freaks. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand.
for this moment. That we were created. But I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com And we're back. So let's go ahead and head in to Green Lantern number 36. So Green Lantern number 36 was cover dated February 1993 with a release date of November 24th, 1992. Cover price again was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and 60 pence UK. Title was Ghost of Christmas Light. Writer was Gerard Jones. Penciler was Gene Ha. Anchor Romeo Tangal. Letter Albert de Guzman. Colorist Anthony Tolan. Assistant editor Eddie Berganza. And let me pronounce that correctly Eddie Berganza. And editor Kevin Dooley. Flying across the night sky in their newly purchased airplane, bathed by the northern lights, Hal Jordan and Carol Ferris are on their way to meet with Hal's family for Christmas. As the two discuss their relationship and their need of family, the Borealis coalesces into the figure of a man, into the figure of Dr. Light, who's been following the green energy, wanting it for himself. Hal and Carol land the Piper near the Jordan home and are immediately beset upon by the Jordan Rugrats. Hal promises that he'll take him up in the plane tomorrow as his brother Jim tackles him from behind and wrestles them to the snowy ground. As the men tussle with, with each other, Sue... Jim's wife, introduces herself to Carol and proceeds to nose in about her relationship with Hal. Wondering what Hal has gotten her into, Carol climbs into the family Volvo as the headlights display a spectral burst of the light-based villain, saying that he can feel the green energy so very near to him. As the car heads for the Jordan household, Carol is forced to endure more uncomfortable questions and more awkward situations. Whispering to Hal about her discomfort, Carol is told by Hal that this weirdness is just the tip of the iceberg. The car finally reaches Jack Jordan's house, where we are introduced to Jack, his wife Sonia, as well as crotchety uncles Jeremiah and Titus, who are busy arguing over the necessity of super-powered crime fighters. Jeremiah warns Hal that Green Lantern is back, which prompts concern from Sue. 
Carol approaches her and asks if she still believes that her husband, Jim, is still Green Lantern. She does, and thinks that the man with three children doesn't have the right to be playing hero. Carol is about to set her straight on who wears the green and black tights in this family when she's abruptly pulled away by Hal. He tells her that he doesn't want his family to know his secret identity, and he's prepared to erase people's thoughts if it will help. Carol fumes at the idea of him erasing her thoughts, but before an argument can break out, Jim and Jack approach to recruit Hal for Santa Claus duty. Hal says that he's already in hot water with Carol and convinces Jim to don the garb. And while all this goes on, the ornament at the top of the tree, which happens to have the face of Dr. Light, hungers for the elusive green energy. The rogue relates his tale of death and rebirth, and how that now his body is one of pure light, and how he so desperately aches for the power of the green light. Meanwhile, Carol is trying to talk to Hal about her feelings, and junk, and stuff. But Hal is needed to film the arrival of St. Nick and cuts the conversation short to film Jim handing out presents to his obnoxious offspring. As Santa Jim is divvying out the gifts, Dr. Light attacks by manipulating the wires in the Christmas tree, snaring Santa. Realizing who his foe is, Hal transforms into Green Lantern and pulls the cord away from Santa. But Dr. Light reacts by covering Hal's ring with a yellow bulb. Letting that sink in. Rendering him useless. Howie, soon Jim's oldest son, tries to pull the cord out of its socket and takes a laser blast to his arm for his trouble. Enraged by the attack of her son, Sue flies at the light strand, pulling the bulb away from Green Lantern's ring long enough for him to whip up a pair of construct scissors which cut the power cord. However, the fight has lit the Christmas tree on fire, and Green Lantern quickly evacuates the Jordan clan. But before he can... Dr. Light materializes before Green Lantern, and Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights served, breaks out. Being an entity of pure light makes fighting Green Lantern easy for the villain. And as he has Hal on the ropes, Dr. Light demands the power of the green light. Hal graciously complies by taking out his power battery and sucking Dr. Light into it. Crisis averted, things return to normal as Jim and Sue make up, the kids get back to opening presents, Titus and Jeremiah agree that superheroes are needed. Hal and Carol are even doing some talking, with Hal telling Carol how he has alerted the Guardians to contain Dr. Light in the central power battery. Carol tells Hal that coming along was actually a good thing, as it's made her realize that she's been missing something in her life. That something is someone to love, and she wants Hal to be that person. As she asks if he thinks it's time, to get married. He will bring it's really nice on this issue that we get a chance to meet with Hal's extended family, even though that they're really, really quirky. But honestly, doesn't every family have their quirky elements in it? I know mine does. In another aspect, it's really interesting to see how Carol relates to this. Carol sort of has this background of a sort of distant father and it being more businesslike, and to be around Hal's family, which is this kind of fun-loving, jibing each other, you know, 
with the, uh, the older grandparents arguing about stuff is kind of awkward to her and kind of unusual to her. So it's really interesting to see how she's reacting to all this, especially when we get to the end of the story where Carol pops the question. Well, not really pops the question, but asks how to pop the question. But with notes for the issue, we'll go ahead and start out with the cover, which is drawn by Gene Ha this time. And I like Gene Ha much better, well, not much better, but I like him better than Tim Hamilton as an artist on the Green Lantern book. Of course, if I could get it, M.D. Bright would be, you know, the person I'd want to have there. Then probably Pat Broderick, uh, and then maybe Gene Ha. But he's a better transition from uh, M.D. Bright than Tim Hamilton was. Uh, his character designs are really good. And it's a really dynamic cover here with Hal being sort of wrapped up by the Christmas lights. Some neat things on the cover are the Christmas tree does happen to have a bunch of DC ornaments. I'm seeing Batman here. It looks like Dr. Light as well. A blue beetle ornament and a Nort ornament. I wish I could get a Nort ornament. Come on, Hallmark. Get on that. However, the cover copy does have one of those little Christmas tags on there saying, From Dr. Light to Green Lantern, have a deadly Christmas. And kind of having to think to myself, after some of the recent goings-ons or goings-on with uh, Dr. Light, shouldn't that be have a rapey Christmas? Ugh. Inside pages three to four, they get a, they do a really good job of setting up the Jordan family and introducing the characters in a succinct manner, but also portraying their personalities. You've got Jim, who's kind of a sort of all-American sort of jock guy, very much like Hal. In fact, he looks quite a bit like Hal. You've got his wife, Sue, who's a public relations person, who's incredibly nosy and also doesn't have that internal filter that kind of tells you that you shouldn't probe into uh, people's issues when they don't want you to. And that leads to some, well, not comedic moments, but some awkward moments between her and Carol. And then, of course, you've got the kids. Three little rugrats who are all hopped up on sugar waiting for Christmas to be here. So it's interesting. You can actually see this being a real family. And it's nice in the comic book to get these moments every once in a while where you get away from the superhero, superheroics and get down to the actual hero having to lead a real life. It's really good storytelling here. Page six, as we finally make it to the uh, Jordan household, we realize that Jack Jordan, the politically-minded member of the Jordan household, is actually Clark Griswold. Yes, he's kind of decorated his house very Griswold-like with a uh, laughing or a ho-ho-hoing Santa on the roof and lights all around. It's a neat callback to that movie. Page 7. Okay, here's something that belies my knowledge of the history of the Green Lantern. I did not know that there were members of the Jordan family who believed that Jim, Hal's brother, was actually Green Lantern. So... It makes for an interesting dynamic here that everyone's not really certain who Green Lantern is. Uh, it, does, it does give reasoning in everyone's minds why Green Lantern would just suddenly show up there, 
but it's an interesting addition to the storytelling here. Plus, on the same page, panel four, you get a nice comedic artistic moment as Carol's getting ready to tell Sue that Hal is actually Green Lantern, and Hal's behind her, you know, sort of wiggling his finger, giving her the shushing motion. It's it's an interesting comedic panel. I like it. Page 8, panel 2, as Uncle Jeremiah, Jer, sorry, Jeremiah and Titus are arguing about the necessity of their being superheroes, the kids mention that the only one better than Green Lantern is Guy Gardner. So, at least the kids like Guy Gardner. Unfortunately, I guess you could say, what do kids know about quality? So, you can have it either way, I guess. Skipping ahead to page 11, panel 2, it's kind of neat that one of the presidents that or presidents one of the presents that Jim is handing out is wrapped in wrapping paper that has the uh, Batman Christmas Carol song of Jingle Bells Batman Smells. I just thought it was an interesting little throwaway thing that they put in there. Nice little jokey artistic touch. Then just a couple of panels later on panel four on the same page, we get Carol amused over how the kids are reacting to Santa and being very demanding of him and not actually being very polite. I think Carol is finally starting to realize that being on her own isn't what she wants, and being part of a family, even if it is part of this sort of weird, dysfunctional family that the Jordans have, is something that she actually wants to be part of something that she actually wants in her life. And I think it's a good progression of her character in the story. Then on page 14, pen 1, as Hal streaks in to try and save Santa Claus, Jim, from the uh, attacking Dr. Light, it's interesting how each person perceives who Green Lantern is. Obviously, Carol knows that it's Hal. Sue, who believes Jim is actually Green Lantern, thinks that it's Jim. And the little kid, of course thinks it's Guy Gardner, because Guy Gardner is the one true Green Lantern. Then on the same page, uh, panel two, this is what disables Green Lantern, a yellow light bulb sitting on top of his ring. That disrupts the Green Lantern energy and basically does him in, a yellow light bulb. I don't know about you, I'm trying to think of any Christmas tree that I have ever seen that has a yellow light bulb. I can think of green and red and blue. I don't think I've ever seen yellow. Really, it's kind of sad. Then skipping ahead past the fight to page 19, panel 6, um, you've got to kind of wonder that sucking Dr. Light and transporting him into the central power battery might not be a good idea. I mean, who knows what would happen if they decided to suck a horrible villain into the central power battery. That could be terribly, terribly bad news. And then finally, on page 22, panel 6, we get Carol telling Hal, don't you think it's time that we got married? And the look on Hal's face is just like, Yes. Carol may be ready, but I'm afraid Hal may not. So we'll see how this plays out in the next few issues. But that does it for notes for Green Lantern.
I'm going to go ahead and take a break. We're going to drop in a few more promos for some awesome podcasts. And when we get back, we'll start in on Guy Gardner number five. So stay tuned, folks. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you. Yes, you, hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Gappa, Yangari, and Giawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks podcast network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not fight Peter David podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. 
Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pat Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. So, let's go ahead and head into our coverage of Guy Gardner. Guy Gardner number 5 was cover dated February 1993, with a release date on January 5th, 1993. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and 60 pence UK. Title was All That Glitters Is Gold. Plotter was Gerard Jones. This time around, Will Jacobs came in for a scripter. Penciler again was Joe Staten, inker Terry Beatty, letterer Albert Guzman, Colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Putting a royal beat down on Goldface. Yep, that's what Guy Gardner is going to be doing once he finds the Metal Menace. Out on the streets of Las Vegas, Guy sends out seeing eye beams to find his quarry, but turns up empty handed. Frustrated, Guy threatens to sell the ring to a crowd member unless it tells him where Goldface is. As usual, the reply is in Kurigari, and that makes Guy want to kick a puppy. Having no puppies around, Guy boots a nearby slot machine, causing it to hit the jackpot, causing a nearby security guard to have some words with Guy. Saying that he'd never take ill-gotten canes, Guy flies off to the last place he encountered Goldface, the Philly Ranch. But this time, he's going incognito. Well, incognito for Guy. Knowing that he can't use the ring to read lines, Guy employs his detective skills, as they are, in questioning owner Phil about the fillies they have here. After a mix-up of what kind of fillies they're talking about, Guy thinking they were actual girls, the owner saying they were actual horses, Phil tells Guy that he bought the ranch after the previous owner sold it, after some gun-crazed psycho came in and shot up the place. Saying that he was that gun-crazed psycho, Guy demands that Phil tell him where the old owner is. Wanting to keep breathing, Phil directs Guy to Mrs. Kitty's corral. Donning a new suit, Guy enters the house of ill repute, this time making sure that the employees aren't equine in nature. Looking for someone to lead him closer to Goldface, Guy hears the voice of Tiffany. No, not that Tiffany. The Tiffany that Guy met in Times Square, Guy Gardner Reborn, number one. Hoping that she can give him a lead on where Goldface is, Guy takes Tiffany, now going by Sally, upstairs to tell her he's going to shut this place down. Sally says that what she's doing here is legal, and Guy replies that it doesn't make it right, as he rounds up the working girls and smashes the corral. Luckily, Sally had info that money from the corral was being dumped into a certain casino, so she and Guy go all Casino Royale and try to scrounge up the villain's location there. Guy is having no luck with either the cards or the employees, so Sally uses her feminine wiles to find out the location of the owner. Meeting back with Guy, she tells him that Sammy Gullet is the slimeball who runs the place, and that he's in the penthouse. Guy decides to take the express elevator to the room, via his ring, smashing through the floors, 
only to find that the front door is guarded by four roided-up goons. Itching for some Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, always reserved, Guy engages the guards and makes quick work of them. The duo then, then strolls into Sammy's penthouse, ready to get some answers. But thinking it was Green Lantern coming to get him, Sammy drops a yellow shield around his part of the room, effectively saving himself. Well, if it had actually been Green Lantern, and not Guy Gardner. Guy blasts through the shield, grabbing Sammy in a ring construct fist and holding him high above the Las Vegas skyline. Not wanting to end up an abstract sidewalk painting, Sammy tells Guy that he doesn't know about Goldface specifically, but he does funnel money to a gold mining company that has invested heavily in yellow defenses. Guy decides to send a message to the criminal element, and Ring Construct shaves a message into Sammy's hair, saying, Guy Gardner is coming. Pleased with his heroic performance, Guy and Sally stroll arm in arm through the casino until Guy catches a glimpse of a familiar face. Finally realizing who he has ran into, Guy recognizes the man as Tom Pieface Kalmaku. And unfortunately, with Pieface here, Hal Jordan is not far behind. It's almost getting trite and cliched, but the team behind this book is really, the entire time, has been hitting this comic out of the park. The issue combines action, comedy, drama, and just a little bit of the sexy, and all the right amounts to make it a really excellent read. And the fact that they actually went back to the Guy Gardner Reborn issue and brought back Tiffany slash Sally, the kind of helpful hooker, uh is just a welcome addition to the book. Is she kind of gives Guy that sort of pulp hero 1930s ball uh, vibe that you find in sort of the Mickey Spillane books or books dealing with, you know, the hard-boiled detectives of that era. It's a really nice addition to the book, and since Guy and Ice are pretty much on the outs as of now, it's nice for Guy to have a female protagonist in which he can confide and obviously Sally here isn't just a shrieking violet either. She's actually a capable uh, intelligent girl who just decided to take on the guise of a uh, lady of the night. Plus I also have to say she is probably the best drawn female figure that Staten has done in this book. Um a lot of times recently in these books, Staten's female characters have looked kind of off or wonky. Sally really looks good. She's not overdone. She's not a caricature. She's just a very well-drawn, attractive female. And I'm really, really digging it. I am just completely...
completely gushing over this book. But I'm going to stop gushing for a few minutes so that I can get to my notes. And we'll go ahead and start with the cover, which is a simple but pretty vibrant scene of guy trashing all of uh, Sammy Gullet's goons. Um, plus, if you're wanting a look, there are a ton of bad hairstyles on this page. And that's not just including guys. Yeah, um, Sammy's hairstyle almost rivals oh, Bucky Sharp's. And uh, there's a lot of... The goons have a lot of 90s hairstyles as well, with uh, one of them having either a ponytail or a rat tail, it looks like. So, yep, it definitely was the 90s here. Plus, it's got the cover copy saying, Don't reveal the last page. Surprise guest star. Which, you know, I guess I already revealed, but we'll get to that later. Page two is one of the... uh, Citizens on the street in Las Vegas is questioning Guy about what's going on. I like the way Guy gives his sort of quote-unquote creative or revisionist history about his recent encounters with Goldface. You know, saying that first, you know, he tried to psych me into joining him, and we destroyed a carnival discussing it. Uh, That's technically what happened in Guy's mind, but I'm certain the carnival owner would probably have a different explanation of what went on. Page 4, panel 5. Guy wonders, after kicking the slot machine, if there's any way that he can get help learning Cora Guardian from Berlitz. Now, at the time, I had no idea what Berlitz was. I guess it's a sort of 1990s version of Rosetta Stone. It's a language learning program, and uh, I don't know. I wonder if Rosetta Stone has a version that'll allow you to learn Cora Guardian. And on same page, panel 6, after Guy kicks the slot machine, we get Guy channeling a little Jack T. Chance by saying, Yowza. So, there's a nice callback to that character. Plus the uh, fact that Guy actually won at the slot machine, even though he won by kicking it. I think it's kind of a metaphor for the idea that things are actually turning around for Guy. He's actually having success in what he's doing, and this is just an artistic metaphor to show that he's having the success. Page 5, panel 4. We get Guy going up to the Philly Ranch. And, of course, this time he's incognito, so he's decided to dress himself up in a very yellow cowboy pimp suit. It's hard to describe. It's obviously very yellow with a big yellow belt buckle and a sort of square-jawed waistcoat. It's it's ridiculous. Ridiculous, but entertaining at the same time. Pages 6 and 7, as Guy is interrogating Phil, the owner of the Philly Ranch, as to what's going on there, uh, the conversation goes a little bit like this. Phil says, Hey, name's Phil Eaton. How can I help you? Hi, Phil. I'm a shopping for a nice little Philly. Know what I mean? You got anything that stands tall? Phil replies, you betcha, some right powerful hindquarters. <laughs> I'm more of a leg man myself. Huh? Oh, you betcha. This for yourself or a gift? Uh, lots of people give them as gifts. And Guy thinks, gifts? This guy's a traitor in human flesh. Uh, no, no, it's for me. I, I like like hair. Weigh me. Then Phil replies, you just wait to see the golden mane on this one I got in mind. But that ain't nothing. She's real good in mud, too. And Guy replies, All right. 
while thinking to himself, this guy's a sicko. Phil then goes, wait till you check out her teeth. And the guy goes, uh-huh. Yes, sir. You already changed her to chomp on the bed. Guy goes, what? And Phil goes, mm-hmm. I think we've got just what you want. The liveliest three-year-old you ever did see. And Guy has this expression on his face of absolute shock, and he goes, three-year-old? Slime bucket? What kind of subhuman would sell him that young? And Phil says, but, but, the three years old isn't too young for a horse. Yes. Miscommunication there. Guy thinking that this guy was into slave trafficking or sex trafficking, and he was actually just selling horses. It, it, my reading probably doesn't do it justice, but the pages and the panels and the dialogue are just flat out the funniest thing that I've read in I don't know how long. Of course, there there again on page 9, we get sort of a repeat of the dialogue on pages 6 and 7, with a guy talking to Miss Kitty this time. Except at the end of the conversation, this time, Guy makes sure that they're actually not talking about horses and talking about girls. So, there's that. Plus, Guy changed his outfit to a little bit more, well, kind of a 1920s mobster-type outfit. Very high-water pants and... uh short tie, and I don't know what kind of hat you would call it, a tam-o'-shanter? I don't know. It's a weird-looking hat, but it's an effectively unique look for Guy. Page 11, panel 4, after Guy's encountered Sally and is starting to break up the whole Philly Ranch, or not Philly Ranch, Kitty Corral, uh, Sally loses her blonde wig, and she's got a sort of odd-looking haircut. It's a very short crop cut at the best thing I could probably describe it as is a sort of Grace Jones look. However, as much as I feel that Grace Jones really doesn't do it for me, Sally here does. Uh, again, I harp on the fact that Joe Staten is doing his best job at drawing a female character with the character of Sally in this book. She's really an attractive-looking character. Page 12, panel 2. Sally asks Guy if he could use the ring to win, and the Guy says, What? Me cheat? You wound me. Besides, it ain't my money. It's the casino's cut I borrowed from Miss Kitty. So, Guy's not opposed to using the money from ill-cotton canes, but he's not going to cheat to win more money. That's the noble kind of person he is. Page 14, panel 2. Sally uses her very ample assets to uh, help Guy figure out where the uh, boss might be. Yes, once again, I'm harping on the artwork of Joe Staten, but it's also a fact that this is one of those characters that's not a ditzy, well, I guess not blonde, but it's not a ditzy character. She's actually very nuanced, and she knows how to use her sexuality to get things done, and I like that in a character. I like the characters not just being one-dimensional eye candy. Page 15, panel 1. As Guy and Sally take the Guy Gardner Express elevator to the top floor, I'm just kind of wondering, wouldn't it be easier to phase through the floor? I mean, I know you're trying to make a dramatic entrance, but smashing through all the levels of this casino really isn't helping your image that much, Guy. Page 17, panel 1. The look of Sammy Gullett is a really kind of unique blend of, oh, Sammy Davis Jr., Wayne Newton, and Elvis. I mean, they're all big draws of 
Vegas iconography, Vegas entertainment, and despite the fact that they're a kind of odd mishmash of it, his character design really works. And again, credit to Staten for coming up with this kind of stuff. In page 21, panel 1, we get Sally asking Guy if this hero stuff is really important to him, and he says, Yes, ma'am. All my life I'd had dreams, goals, and all my life others had gotten where, gotten here before me. Taken away from me. Not anymore. It's a nice bit of character development that really doesn't forward the story, but at least gives more idea to why Guy is who he is. It's not needed, but it helps flesh the character out. Then finally, on page 22, we get the big final panel reveal, and the final panel is Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Soze. No, wait. No, it's uh, Bruce Willis was dead from the beginning. N- no, um, okay, Jay Davison has a little thing between his legs. He's a man. Well, I guess that's not really how the issue ends. It's Hal Jordan, but you kind of expect him to show up in the book, and you can imagine that things aren't going to go well between Hal and Guy. But that's it for notes. Let's go ahead and go through the book and take a trip down memory lane and see what kind of ads they had to sell stuff to kids in these comic books in the 1990s. On the front end side cover, I think we may have covered it before for the uh, NEA or for the Super Well, no, I know we covered it for the Genesis. But this time, they've got it for the Super NES and for the Game Boy. It's the Game Genie. It's the little cartridge that you'd put in the game console that would allow you to put in cheat codes that would give you infinite lives or unlimited health on certain games. So they're branching out from the simple NES versions. So good on you, Galoob. You're working the cheat codes for the consoles of the time. Then we get another creepy ad for... Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which has a, what I can only assume, a human brain with an oil dipstick sticking out of it. I don't know if we covered this one before, because I'm trying to block out all the images of cows and, you know, disintegrated child's bodies that are related in the advertising for the Final Fantasy Mystic Quest game. Ugh. Next page, we've got Chuck Rock for your Super NES, and it looks like a kind of, oh, your typical side-scroller game, maybe on the line of Bonk's Adventure for the, um, what is it, uh, TurboGrafx-16. Uh, it's one of those launch titles, I think, for the Super NES that really didn't catch on and probably was just a enjoyable throwaway title. I never played it, so I can't give you any idea of whether it's good or not. Then a few pages in, we get a hero becomes a villain, a soldier becomes a statement, and a boy becomes a man. The Impact Universe has changed forever. 99 cents first for the first issue, it's Crucible. And it looks like it's got some pretty uh, high-profile uh, people working on it, with, I'm assuming, Bryce, Brian Augustine, Mark Wade, Joe Quesada, uh, Wojciechowicz, I don't know, and Palmiotti on there. So, Jimmy Palmiotti on a comic. Uh, the way he's doing uh, All-Star Western, you know, this might have actually been a fun read with Palmiotti on it, so who knows? Then after that, we get a full page, a full page, a full page ad for World Without a Superman. It's just a black page with white lettering uh, saying the legend continues, and it gives all the issues uh, 
that make up the uh, funeral for a friend story arc. Uh, Jeffrey and Michael over at From Crisis to Crisis have already covered the funeral for a friend story arc, and they just finished up Reign of the Superman uh, with uh, actually covering Green Lantern number 46 and Superman number 82. So they've just got a few things to wrap up, and Superman is basically back over there. So definitely check out From Crisis to Crisis and listen to that show. Always a good listen. Then a few more pages in, we get someone dressed like a bat is murdering the citizens of Gotham City. And you got this weird sort of face mask, and the uh, ad is for the Batman comic Batman Shaman. Join Batman in one of his earliest adventures, representing the first story arc from the acclaimed series Batman Legends of the Dark Knight. Uh, I think written by Denny O'Neill, with uh, art by Ed Hannigan, John Beatty, and Richmond Lewis. And a new painted cover by George Pratt. So, I don't really have any recollection of Batman Shaman. If anyone can give me an idea of the story arc, I'd love to listen to it. Right in, everyone. Or anyone. Next page, we got the same old hodgepodge page, basically learning how to build muscles and learning how to draw. And at the bottom, it's got a nice Parabek version of the Batman, saying if you like the cartoon, you'll love the comic book. And that's an ad for the Batman Adventures. Buy it. He's watching you which kind of makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Then the next ad is the ad for the uh, AIDS, or the National AIDS Hotline. It's the one with uh, the Tim Drake Robin and uh, Alfred talking about this kid in school who's contracted the HIV virus. And some of the kids, I guess, are you know shunning the kids, so Robin's gone out to uh, get some information about HIV. It's another good ad campaign, and it's good artwork as well. The Gaetan column uh, again continues up uh, people praising the last issue of uh, Guy Gardner Reborn and also talking about the first issue of Guy Gardner. Uh, there's a lot of people in there who are really giving Guy a good amount of praise, a few people who are jumping on him, and unfortunately Guy has to uh, make a redaction to uh, one of his earlier comments in the book. I think in one of his earlier comments, he referred to Terry Beatty, the uh, anchor in the book, as John Beatty, and uh, Terry Beatty has a little bit to say about that. In fact, he says, Guy, you simpering idiot. What's the deal, Guy? Can't you even read the credits in your own book? I suppose I have to, if you have to mix me up with somebody, John Beatty is a good choice. He's a terrific anchor and all, but we're not the same person. We're not even related though it turns out that another comic book anchor, Barb Kahlberg, and I are cousins. The name is Terry Beatty, and don't you forget it. He may wield the most powerful weapon in the DC Universe, but I wield the all-powerful inking brush. And you have just a few schools away from having glasses, a mustache, and a goatee. And don't go goofing up the names of my collaborators, Gerald Jones and Joe Stanton, either, or we may be forced to give you an even goofier haircut. And Guy... Is that a sock in your pants, or are you just glad to see yourself? Your anchor, Terry Beatty. <laughs> it's nice that they're, even in the letters page, not taking this too seriously. I love the fact that there's a comic out there that's actually having fun and realizes that this is a comic. It's awesome. And then on the uh, back inside cover, we get an ad for a game called Phalanx, which has perhaps the weirdest 
enticement to try and get you to play the game on the cover. It's got a old, bearded, banjo-playing country and western guy in overalls advertising this space shooter game. I don't get it, but maybe this enticed kids at the time. God, I hope not. And finally, on the back outside cover, we got T2, the arcade game, now on the Sega Genesis. And the uh, It's the port of the arcade game, obviously, Terminator 2. And uh, Terminator 2 for the video game, or the video game that you'd find in arcades, was actually a gun-based shooter game, where you held a fixed gun on a little stand, and you could shoot the uh, Terminators with it, and uh, eventually you'd have to build up more ammo, but you could also had a button on the side where you could launch uh, grenades as well. It was a fun shooter game for the arcade. However, on the Genesis, you had to use the uh, gamepad to shoot, so the precision really wasn't as good. Of course, this may just be coming from me, and I'm not really that good with the joy pads at, at shooting games. Just was always kind of difficult for me. But it looks like a pretty good port. Uh, I remember uh, playing it when I was a kid, uh, renting it. Well, I guess not as a kid, as sort of an adult in college for my Sega Genesis. And it was a fun game, and the Genesis actually captured a lot of the graphics that you could get on the arcade games. Uh, it looks good. Unfortunately, not having an actual gun to play it with made it a bit more difficult. But that's it for ads, and that's it for the issue. Um, I guess, again, I have to say that, sadly, neither the Green Lantern issue nor this issue has been reprinted in any way, shape, or form. So... Hopefully you can find a way to follow along. I mean, go to your local comic book store or find some alternate means of viewing the comics because they're really getting into a fun era. However, next week, I just kind of have to preface this, we're coming up on Green Lantern th- number 37. In a row? And not to be too polite about it, it's not the best issue out there. You may actually have, uh, for the first time in me doing this show, me really complaining about a Green Lantern book. But Guy Gardner is going to be awesome. I can guarantee that. So, even with that resounding endorsement of the next issue, I would really love it if you come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Hope you guys have a good weekend, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weird tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. 
And there you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time wandering around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, my Greenland podcast. The opening music for today's show was Bing Crosby's It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. Now, this can be found on a myriad number of Christmas albums or on a myriad number of Christmas-themed movies. And if you wanted to get any of those Christmas-themed movies, I would suggest that you go to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com and click on the Amazon.com banner there, which will lead you to Amazon.com and allow you to buy a myriad number of Christmas-centered videos, songs, games, what have you. Plus, Amazon.com has pretty much anything that anyone could ever want. So, if you are planning on shopping, and let's face it, it's coming up to the holiday season, go do your shopping on Amazon.com, and when you do, make sure you use the link at the Two True Freaks website. It helps make sure that fine quality Demonzacore podcasts stay on the air for your pleasure. Oh, and as just an addendum to the show, hey Michael Bradley, this song's for you.
change my name Cause we all just wanna be big rock stars And live in hilltop houses Driving 15 cars The girls come easy and the drugs come cheap We'll all stay skinny cause we just won't eat And we'll hang out in the coolest bars And the VIP with the movie stars Every good gold digger's gonna wind up there Every playboy bunny with a bleach blonde hair And we'll part out in the private rooms With the latest dictionary of today's zoo. They'll get you in